Would you all stand this morning as we read God's word? We can stretch, limber up. We got, we got some, some time on our feet. You're welcome to sit down if you need a break during this. Um, but we are reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. A certain man, Lazarus, was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness is not fatal. It's for the glory of God, so that God's Son can be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. After two days, he said to his disciple, disciples, let's return to Judea again. The disciples replied, Rabbi, the Jewish opposition wants to stone you, but you want to go back? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours in the day? Whoever walks in the day does not stumble because they see the light of the world. But whoever walks in the night does stumble because the light isn't in them. He continued, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I am going in order to wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will get well. They thought Jesus meant that Lazarus was in a deep sleep, but Jesus had spoken about Lazarus' death. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you can believe. Let's go to him. Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, said to the other disciples, let us go too so that we may die with Jesus. How's everybody doing? We're about a third of the way there. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him while Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Martha replied, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who, believes, or who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. After she said this, she went and spoke privately to her sister Mary. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. He had not entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were comforting Mary in the house saw her get up quickly and leave, they followed her. They assumed she was going to mourn at the tomb. When Mary arrived where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to cry. The Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, he healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone covered the entrance. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, the smell will be awful. He's been dead for four days. Jesus replied, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I say this for the benefit of the crowd standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. 
Having said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his feet bound and his hands tied and his face covered with a cloth. Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary and saw what Jesus did believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We made it, guys. We made it. Now you get to listen to me talk more. So, John immediately introduces us to three different characters here. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And a a quick note in verse 2 reveals to us that we, as, as readers of this later on, we kind of know who these sisters are, right? So in the Gospel of Luke, we read a story about Jesus visiting Martha and Mary. And Martha scrambles around to make sure that all the details are figured out. She makes sure she's a good host. And then she complains to Jesus, like, come on, do you not see that my sister Mary is just sitting here doing nothing? And Jesus kind of gets after Martha because Mary is doing what he calls the better thing. What is better? And so these are the Mary and Martha that we now see in this passage that John reveals also have a brother named Lazarus. Um, And Lazarus is sick. Just a, just a warning. There's going to be a lot of Lego pictures as we go through this story. Um, Lazarus is sick. And we aren't told why Lazarus is sick or how serious it is. But it's apparently worrisome enough that Martha and Mary send this message to Jesus saying, The one whom you love is ill. And Martha and Mary obviously know who Jesus is, right? And they know what he's capable of. They've heard the stories. They've maybe even seen the miracles that he has performed. And they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So when their brother falls ill, I don't feel so good. When he falls ill, they naturally turn to this man that they know well, who they know is, he's proven capable of healing people. And so they send this message, Lord, the one you love is sick. And it seems like um, the relationship between Jesus and Lazarus is a fairly close one because simply by saying the one whom you love is sick, They assume that Jesus will know that means Lazarus is sick. And this is coming from John, who, if you you have read much in John, he calls himself the one whom Jesus loves. Um, So there's there's some kind of real friendship, real relationship here between Jesus and Lazarus. It's it's an important one. But not only that, this message communicates a certain expectation that they have. Um, they, They didn't need Jesus to come... They didn't need to ask Jesus to come heal him, um, but simply by telling him that he was sick, they thought surely Jesus will come and heal him or will do something about this. Um, And I would argue that they're not wrong, right? Based on other stories that we read about Jesus, who he is, um, and how he responds to the needs of those who are sick and in need of healing, we would expect that Jesus would quickly go to Lazarus and heal him, right? We see it with um, Peter's mother-in-law when he is asked to heal her, he goes and he heals her. We see it with um, Jairus' daughter. He goes and he heals her. We even see it um, when Jesus offers to go to the centurion's house to, to heal his servant. Um, but then the centurion's like, oh, actually, you don't need to come. I believe that you can heal even from far away. And it says Jesus is amazed. Um, but we see this multiple times throughout these stories of Jesus, that Jesus, when he hears of someone in need, someone in need of healing, that he goes and he heals. And many times this is how we see Jesus responding, right? 
He, somebody says, I'm sick. And he says, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. He goes and he does it. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus' eagerness to go help people is very obvious. It's very evident. No matter how tired he is, no matter what he is doing in the moment, those in need of healing are never turned away. Because this is the nature of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. And so this story should a little bit shock us, right? This seems very out of character for Jesus. Because his response is, this sickness will not end in death. This sickness is not fatal. It's for the glory of God so that God's son can be glorified through it. So rather than going to heal Lazarus, Jesus kind of downplays this, the severity of this illness. He says it won't lead to death. He says that whatever this sickness is, it's ultimately for God's glory. Essentially, Jesus is saying, guys, it's going to be fine. It's fine. And apparently it's so much going to be fine that Jesus is like, well, although I love Martha, I love Mary, I love Lazarus, you know, I'm going to stay two days longer here. I'm not going to go for another two days. He's seemingly so unconcerned that he just chills out on his hammock for a couple of days. And I don't know if, do, you, do any of you have friends or family members who like, it feels like any time that you are concerned about time, they are just super unconcerned about time. Like you are kind of anxious and impatient, like ready to go. And it's like they're trying to lag behind. They're trying to make you wait longer. It feels like they're purposefully making you late. I say that as somebody who is one of those people. Um, but that's what it seems like Jesus is doing here, right? It almost feels like he's, he's dragging his feet and he wants to be late to go see Lazarus. But then after a couple of days, he's like, all right, I'm ready to go see my buddy Lazarus. And he says, let's go, let's go back. But then his disciples are like, wait a second, we were okay with you not going because of what's back there in Judea. And, and this is probably a good time to take a step back. A quick bit of context from the chapter before this, um, in this larger story of Jesus. So this, this passage, this, these 45 verses about Lazarus and resurrection and all that, this is an important part of Jesus' journey to the cross. This is an important part of the gospel story, the good news of, of Jesus, because, because his popularity is dwindling. And it, that sounds like a bad thing, but it's an important part of the story. His popularity amongst the general people is dwindling. There are people who are becoming more and more um, outraged or upset with what he is preaching, with the blasphemy, as they perceive it, of saying that he is the Son of God. And in this previous chapter, he's speaking to a group of Jews um, in the temple. And he's performed all these miracles. He's proclaimed his identity, who he is, his purpose in being here many, many times. And yet in this passage, in chapter 10, the Jews say, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. If you are who you say you are, just tell us. And Jesus is like fed up at this point, right? Like, have I, haven't I told you enough already? Haven't you seen what I have done? Don't you believe from what I have said and what I have done that I am from God? And he says, whether or not you believe what I've said, at least look at these miracles that I've done. At least look at what I have done in the people around you. And can you not see that that is not from me, that that is from God, that I have been sent by God? But all this does is it riles them up even more. And they try to stone him. They try to arrest him. But somehow he manages to escape 
that elusive Jesus, and he heads off to where we find him in our passage this morning. Um, So this, this is what he has to go back to in Judea. People who want to arrest him, who want to kill him, who are very upset with him, who refuse to believe who he is, what he says, what he has done, refuse to believe that he is from God, sent by God. And they refuse so greatly that they want to arrest him, stone him, kill him because of the liar, the blasphemer that he is. So it's no wonder that the disciples in this moment, when he says, all right, let's go back to Judea, let's go see Lazarus, they're like, uh, can we not? Because there's a very real threat to Jesus's life and because of who they are, a very real threat to their life. But Jesus gives a super Jesus-y answer here and he basically says, I was sent here to do God's work and so while I'm here, I'm going to do God's work which is a fantastic attitude. I, rec- I highly recommend that to all of you. But if you are this group of guys following somebody like that who is in real danger to their life, it's probably not so hot of an idea, right? You're not as comfortable with the whole, we're going to go do this, but we might get killed doing it kind of a thing. But Jesus just shrugs that off. He says he's going to go wake up his sleeping friend, Lazarus. And so, based on this reaction that Jesus has had to Lazarus being sick, to his choice to wait a few days before going, and, and then now deciding to go back to this place that he is not wanted in, um, his disciples are probably a little confused, right? Why would Jesus need to go wake up his friend Lazarus? Why would he need to go be a human alarm clock to a guy that is probably resting so that he can get better? But what, what might be lost on the disciples um, is this f- fairly common um, metaphor used that Lazarus is sleeping, which would mean that Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus, in a rare moment of direct clarity, says, no, guys, Lazarus is dead. Simple as that. Lazarus is dead. Jesus is rarely this clear with things, but he's very clear and direct here. And as if they're not already kind of reeling with this information that Lazarus is dead, he follows it up with, you know what? For your guys' sake, I'm kind of glad I wasn't there. Which, if he said that to me, I would be like, don't put this on me, man. Don't say it's for my sake. Much less, why are you glad about that? The disciples probably think that Jesus has gone a little crazy, right? That he's gone off his rocker. Because first, he shows little concern for his friend being sick. He says that it's not fatal and decides to just hang out there for a couple more days. And then when he does decide to go, he's like, well, actually, he is dead. It is fatal. But let's go anyways, and let's risk our own lives. And you know what? I'm glad I wasn't there. And and it's for your guys' sake. Totally insane, I think. That's not how, how to be a good friend, Jesus. But then Thomas, um, who I think oftentimes gets a bad rap, we, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? Um, but Thomas says something that is, I think, incredibly profound. Um, and I hope you'll see why maybe at the end of this sermon. But I, I doubt Thomas realizes it in the moment why it's profound. But he says, all right, you know, let's get this over with. Jesus is definitely about to die. So you know what? Let's go die with him. 
And Jesus just, or John just leaves that, like that's kind of the wrap up of that section. And we jump forward to now Jesus is at Mary and Martha's doorstep. Um, But John gives us some important information here about the timeline of all of this. So he says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And then also Bethany, which is where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. So we're given the timing, four days after Lazarus' death. We're given the setting, the location, um, which is the Bethany that was near Jerusalem. There were multiple Bethanies in the area. So the one that was two miles outside of, of Jerusalem. Um, and those give us some background about what's going on here. So here's a map that if you're anything like I was before I took Bible classes, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, but you see the Bethany, and there's an arrow pointing to it. It says that Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan River. Um, so based on the maps that we have, it's, approxim- it's anywhere, the, the place Jesus was to where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were, it's about 10 to 20-ish miles which is definitely within the range of one day's travel. So Jesus arriving, as it says, four days after Lazarus had been put in the tomb, um, that tells us something. So we can estimate a one-day journey to deliver the message to Jesus, two days chilling out, and then one more day return journey for Jesus to join them and probably the disciples with him. Which means that Lazarus had if he had been dead for four days, had likely died shortly after Martha and Mary had had this message sent off to Jesus. So did Jesus know that when he got this message, he already knew that Lazarus had died? Did he delay because he had some kind of divine knowledge of what had already transpired? Um, and, and even if he had died, what does that mean for Jesus's relationship with Martha and Mary, that he's not even there to comfort and console them? Jewish custom at the time required for the burial of a dead body the day that it had passed away, on the same day. And there was also this belief amongst a lot of Jewish people that when they died, there was kind of a a three-day window right after where the soul would kind of hang out and wait to see if maybe it could re-enter the body and they would come back to life. That was kind of the the belief of the day. So it wasn't until that fourth day that they would say, all right, nope, totally, fully, fully gone, um, moving forward. So with Jesus' two-day delay here, plus one travel day each direction, it would make sense that Lazarus died and was buried on the day after that messenger had sent the message. Or, sorry, on the day that the message was sent. Um, It would also mean that Jesus' arrival then, after Lazarus had been written off as kind of fully dead, the three days that many Jews um, believed held any possibility of resurrection, those had passed. So Jesus had arrived at least four days after he could have healed Lazarus, four days after he um, could have, uh, that Lazarus would have been buried, and one day after many had kind of finally given up hope of any, of Lazarus coming back. And so this scene that Jesus shows up to is probably full of a lot of despair, hopelessness, um, disappointment, as we see, um, frustration. And he's greeted by Martha, whose first words to him are, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
which is like a sucker punch, right, as a greeting. Um, Maybe a little bit harsh, but, you know, totally fair. Understandable. She greets Jesus by honestly sharing her disappointment in the fact that he was not there. If he had been here, her brother would not have died. She believed that Jesus was able to heal Lazarus when he was sick, um, but at, at this point in the process, there was not that same confidence that Jesus could heal Lazarus. And I think her next words tell us a lot about Martha's character and Martha's faith. I love how she starts this next sentence, that even now... I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Even now, she says. So Martha was not confident that Jesus would raise her brother from the dead. But in this moment, she has kind of, whether she's moved past it or just stepped outside of it, she is recognizing and and providing this bold claim that she still puts her trust and her faith in Jesus, even in spite of her disappointment with his actions. And I think that Martha's words here show this remarkable demonstration of her faith. Even in the midst of great sorrow and grief, the fact that Jesus doesn't come in a timely manner and doesn't heal her brother does not change the fact that Martha's faith is in Jesus. She believes who Jesus says that he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus has direct access to this divine intervention and healing. And If I'm being honest, I don't know if I would have had that same faith. I would not have been able to verbalize it, at least, as Martha did. And Jesus seems to reassure her here, saying, Your brother will rise again. And he does like Jesus does, and he points her to hope. But Martha, in this moment, I'm sure that if, if any of you have had a loved one pass away, a common saying is like, Oh, but... Like, at least you'll see them again someday. We, we have hope in that. And, and it feels like that's what Jesus is saying here. And Martha, in her grief, is like, okay, yes, but I'm still grieving. She says, yeah, Jesus, I know, I know that there will be a day that Lazarus and, and all of the righteous will be resurrected. But it's hard not to read this with just a little bit, like, understanding her grief and where she's at emotionally, to read this as, like, Yes, I, I believe that, but right now that's not what matters. If you had been here, my, my brother wouldn't have died. But Jesus then pushes it a little bit further with one of the, the more repeated popular lines of Scripture saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. So Jesus doesn't just claim to have or to give resurrection and life. He claims that he is resurrection and life. Because to know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. To have Jesus is to have resurrection and life. And at this point, it would not be abundantly clear to Martha exactly what Jesus means by this. But for those of us on this side of the resurrection story, on this side of of everything that Jesus goes through in just a couple of weeks, we'll get there. Um, This is kind of a pillar of our faith, right? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus lays out this important idea, this foundational idea for us, and what we believe that resurrection and new life can only happen through Jesus Christ. And then for a third time, Martha displays this great faith that she has in Jesus, and she proclaims him to be the, the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One. 
She believes not just in Jesus's um, claim or the sound logic of his claim, but she believes in Jesus himself. And it's this belief in Jesus that brings resurrection, that brings new life. And so Martha, she's still grieving, but she is obviously very confident in who she knows Jesus to be. She then heads off to get her sister Mary. And Mary arrives and she says the same exact thing. The same words are recorded here. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But there's something different about this interaction, just as we see something different in how Mary and Martha act in the previous story that we know them from. Um, She comes and she throws herself at Jesus' feet, weeping. And it's here that we kind of see some of the emotions of Jesus. We see Mary and then again, uh, the, the people who are following Mary, the Jews who are following Mary, we see them come, um, and they are all weeping. And later on, in just a little bit, when Jesus goes to the tomb, there are, there are emotions that Jesus has in both of these settings. It says that he's deeply disturbed. He's troubled. And this, this phrase in, it's in the original language is translated as groaned in the spirit. Um, so the understanding of this phrase in the ancient Greek is, is literally to snort like a horse. So it's, it's not so much of emotional turmoil. It's definitely that. But it's more so implying some kind of anger or indignation at what is taking place. So Jesus groans in the spirit, in his spirit, not the Holy Spirit. He groans in his spirit. And he is full of emotion. He is angered. He is grieved. He is, he is upset with with what has happened. He's upset with sickness and death, the curse of sin that has brought chaos and sorrow to this perfect creation that is now the fallen world. And this anguish, it says, leads Jesus to weep alongside all of these people. This is the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. There have been a lot of interpretations about what this moment reveals about Jesus. Um, but you get to hear my, my beliefs on it. Um, I believe that this gives us a picture of, of who Jesus is. That Jesus is fully human. He sheds tears for his friends. There's no sin or shame to be had in shedding tears for the world around us. Jesus shows his humanity. He was fully human. But he also shows that he is fully divine, that he is fully God. Because this God that we believe in, that we see elsewhere in scripture, is one that is deeply moved by humanity. In Genesis, it talks about God being deeply grieved when, before he sends the flood. He's not angry, he is deeply grieved. In Judges, it talks about God having compassion on humanity. God promises to rejoice with humanity. God feels deeply alongside of us. God has deep emotions. We believe that we believe in a God that is in relationship with his creation, with humanity. We believe that Jesus is the prime example of that. And I think that this passage is pretty clear evidence of that fact. So Jesus is deeply disturbed at the sight of all of this, but he He tells them to remove the stone. And Martha, ever the practical one, says, dude, that's going to stink. Do you know how he's been in there for four days? It's going to smell really bad. 
But Jesus kind of pushes back on her. He challenges her. He says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? The glory of God is all around us. The glory of God is, is all around this world, whether we choose to see it or not. So then the question becomes, are we going to have our eye out for the glory of God? God is working these miracles. God is doing these things. God is interacting with his creation. But do we choose to see that? To see God's glory. Ultimately, the choice is ours. Do we believe? Do we see God's glory? The Jews earlier, in, in the last chapter, in the chapters before, the Jews had chosen not to see it, right? Jesus says, didn't you see all of these works that I have done? Don't you believe that I am sent by God, regardless of whether you believe what I'm saying? And they still have chosen not to believe, and they want to kill him. But now Jesus challenges Martha if she if she is willing. And before any evidence of a resurrection is revealed, Jesus looks up to heaven. Jesus thanks God for hearing his prayer. He thanks God for being attentive to his request. And Jesus shows his confidence. He says, God, I believe I, I will see your glory. Which makes sense. He is God, right? He would have a little bit of an inside scoop. But what comes next I think shows us more so the heart of Jesus. He says, I say this for the benefit of the crowd standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. So Jesus doesn't do all of this for his fame or his popularity. He doesn't do this um, just to kind of get in the good graces of the people around him. He doesn't just do them so that people think, wow, Jesus is super cool or super intelligent or competent. Everything that Jesus does during his time on earth is all done for the glory of God. All the miracles, all the teachings, all the healings are done so that people might believe in the God who sent him. And even these simple words of thanksgiving before this miracle happens are evidence of that. He knew what God would do. And in that moment, he is pointing people to the Father. He says, I'm doing this for them. And sure enough, Lazarus steps out of the tomb, fully alive and definitely stinky after four days in there. This resurrection has happened. This new life has happened. And I'm going to be honest. As I was reading through this and wrestling with this and, and preparing for this morning, this passage makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It, it feels like Jesus is just allowing Lazarus to die for the purpose of using it as some opportunity to prove who he is. And that's the way it reads, right? That Jesus kind of had to let Lazarus die for the good of the gospel, for the good of the glory of God. It's, it's almost exactly what Jesus says in this passage. And so then we have to struggle with, is this really how God operates? Does he really allow those closest to him to feel pain and loss just so that he can show them who he really was? Is that how God works? And short answer, no. I don't, I don't believe that that's how God works. But we want to believe that God is more concerned with loving us than with showing us God's power. It's easier to direct all of our attention to the fact that 
Christ grieved and wept with his family and friends of Lazarus as an act of love. But I think we need to wrestle with this fact that Jesus waited. Jesus waited. And he waited for a reason. Lazarus, his good friend, died because Jesus was waiting. How could he not intervene? And he waited for this reason that he says, for God's glory. He waited so that they might see God's glory. And when I read this, it, it makes me feel a little bit unpleasant inside. Because it comes across a little bit manipulative on Jesus' part. That he's just toying with human emotions and lives so that God's glory and power would be revealed. But Jesus didn't live and act as people in this story, Mary and Martha, um, but elsewhere, people in general. Jesus didn't live as they wished or expected him or hoped he would, right? Jesus lived and moved as the Father directed. And I think that John invites us in this passage and elsewhere, because John is a very challenging book, he invites us to encounter this Jesus that might make us squirm a little bit that might make us uncomfortable in our understanding of who Jesus is. He, he illustrates this Jesus that forces us to think a little bit harder about our own beliefs, that forces us to think a little bit harder about how, how Jesus interacts with humanity. And I think it's too easy for us. I, I definitely know it's too easy for me to want to look at Jesus or to make Jesus look more like me more made in my image, acting like, like I want him to, right? To interpret the words, the actions of Jesus, how, they, how it makes me more comfortable. It's easy for me to define who Jesus is, how I want Jesus to be, rather than to let my life be defined by who Jesus is. That's the easy way. But Jesus is the perfect image of God, the perfect human form of the character of God. And I think what makes this story feel a little bit less unpleasant to me is when I remember that I believe in a God that is beyond my comprehension. A God whose ways are far better than my own. When I choose to believe in this God that knows more than me, that knows better than me, that is more perfect than me, because the gospel is a story of God doing all things well, not all things easily. The gospel is, is about God doing all things good, not all things how we want them to be done or how we feel comfortable with them being done. So Jesus waited these two days longer, we read, so that a more glorious expression of God's goodness would be made known to more people. That it would be revealed in God's way and in God's timing not in the way or the timing that makes us feel comfortable or makes us feel like we understand God more. I, I believe that if it were purely up to human Jesus, that he would have run to Lazarus' side. I'm fairly confident that he would have tried to intervene in some way to get Lazarus back to health. But Jesus' sole focus, Jesus is not only human. Jesus is fully God as well. And Jesus' sole focus is not on what will make people happy or what will make him suffer less or what will make those around him suffer less, not even to make his friend better. Jesus' sole focus 
is the glory of God. Jesus' sole focus is promoting God to everyone he comes in contact with. So in this, I'm, I'm drawn back to the words of Isaiah 55 that say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. And that's a good thing. God's ways are far better than our ways. But does this mean that we live some ignorant, naive life, burying our head in the sand to the real world issues? Absolutely not. I think that God desires for us to seek out wisdom, to seek out understanding and truth and and goodness. But I also know that those things can only be found in Jesus. Those things can only be found in God. And so we need to constantly be challenging ourselves. Are we shaping and forming this Jesus that we read about or this God that we read about to be more comfortable for us? To be easier for us to grasp? To be easier for us to continue living our lives and not be changed? When Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again, what she hears is this promise of some future resurrection. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus seems to correct her in this by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. So we have to ask, Jesus, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, oddly enough, there are some ancient manuscripts that remove the and the life part of Jesus' statement because it's seemingly redundant, right? If he's the resurrection and the life, like those, he's just saying the same thing, so we don't need to include that. And I think it's easy for us to do the same, right? We talk about when we believe in God, we have this eternal life, this everlasting life. And it's easy for us to think ahead for like, okay, and that, and that begins when we die, right? We're taken up into heaven and then eternity begins. But I think that recognizing Jesus as the resurrection and the life means far more than that. I think it means that Jesus has, has come, as John records it one chapter earlier. He has come so that we might have life and have life abundantly. To have life to the fullest, to the max. Jesus is the resurrection, but Jesus is also the life for us. Right here, right now, everlasting, eternal life starts the moment that you say yes to Jesus. The moment that you make that decision and allow Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior of your life. But a little bit getting ahead of ourselves because that's coming in two weeks because we haven't made it to Jesus' resurrection yet. Um, But we are in the middle of the season of Lent. And we are asking ourselves this question, why Lent? Why do we take this time to humble ourselves, to remember our brokenness and our sinfulness? Why do we take this time to ask God to search me and know me and, and reveal if there is any wicked way in me? Because there would be no resurrection if there was not death before that. For resurrection and new life to happen, there has to be old life. There has to be death. Lazarus is not raised from life to life because that doesn't make any sense. And we're not given this new life, this resurrection, if we don't admit that something about our old life is wrong. 
There can be no newness of life, no resurrection, if we refuse to acknowledge that our old life is in need of new life and resurrection, that our old life is flawed and broken and done our way, because God only brings resurrection to the places where there is death. And God will not and does not do for us what we are equipped and called to do ourselves. So as freely as God offers grace and new life, God doesn't coddle us and spoil us and allow us to just kind of rest easy and say like, okay, yeah, Jesus has done all the hard work and I believe in him, so I'm going to continue living like I do and I'm going to have new life. Because God's grace calls us deeper than that into this realization that we are never enough on our own. That's what this season is about, is recognizing our sinfulness, our brokenness, our inability and insufficiency to do it on our own. So in order for this new life and resurrection to happen in us, that Jesus has provided for us, that we will get to in two weeks, in order for that to happen, we need to take an honest look in the mirror and say, where, where am I trying to do it my way? Where am I doing my own efforts? And where am I struggling exhaustively because I'm trying to do it on my own? We have to surrender ourselves to God's better way, God's better will, God's better life for us. Because, again, our way is not the best way. We need to come to the end of ourselves because only in acknowledging our own insufficiency does God, through Jesus, bring this resurrection and new life. Only in death can God bring new life. The worship team can come back up now, and we're going to sing one last song, and I want to challenge you. You're welcome to sing along to this song. It's, it's one we have done before, um, but I, what I really want to challenge you to do is to earnestly seek God's voice. What parts of your life are you living in your own strength? What parts of your life are you just trying to make it by on your own? Where are you relying on your own capacity, your own ability during this song, I want us to, to be asking God that. Say, God, search me and know me. Reveal to me these things, these places where I need to die so that you can bring new life. And as we've done the last couple of weeks, these, these altars here, they're not anything special. They're wooden structures. Um, but as James chapter 4 talks about as we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And so these are a physical example of drawing near to, uh, to God so that God will draw near to us. These altars are open. You're more than welcome to, to come up here. But as we sing this last song, um, and as we remember this season of Lent and think about this question, why Lent? I want these minutes to be an opportunity for God to reveal in us these areas where we need to die to our own way and our own will so that God can bring this new life, that God can bring this resurrection that is promised. So let's sing and pray together.